This podcast series contains discussion of historical violence, racism, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. In December of 2021, I published a story in the state, the local newspaper here in Columbia, South Carolina. It was a story about a long-ago crime that left a teenager dead, murdered in retribution for a crime he never committed. That was the first time I wrote about Willie Leapart, whose death at the hands of a South Carolina lynch mob had been swept under the rug and forgotten for 130 years. But as sad as Willie's story was, this wasn't a report for a history class. That may have been the original goal of Michael Burgess, the local history teacher who uncovered this information about Willie's case that had been hiding in plain sight. I was reporting a news story about what might happen in the future. When Willie was lynched in 1890, he died as a convicted rapist who had been sentenced to death by the state of South Carolina. Willie's lawyer was appealing that death sentence at the time of Willie's murder, and the evidence pointed toward Willie being innocent of the charges filed against him. But because of the lynching, Willie's case had been frozen in time, with the rape conviction still on the books in South Carolina. Now, because of Michael's research, there was a very real effort to get Willie's 1890 rape conviction overturned in a court of law. With all the evidence we've talked about over the course of this podcast, surely there was every reason to think Willie could finally get some semblance of justice, even if it came more than a century too late. But it turns out getting absolution for Willie Leapart in the 21st century would be no easier than in the 19th. I'm Bristow Marchant, a reporter for the state newspaper in Columbia, South Carolina. And this is The Wrong Walk Home, The Lynching of Willie Lee Park, a podcast from McClatchy and the state about the improbable turns in the case of a historic injustice. In this episode, we trace the fallout from Willie's violent death and what it would take to finally see justice done. After a mob broke into the Lexington County Jail and shot Willie Leapart to death on the night of May 5, 1890, it didn't take long for investigators to make an arrest. F.C. Kaufman, a local businessman and politician in Lexington, was the primary suspect in organizing dozens of people to seize Willie from jail. Since Kaufman was recognized by two key witnesses, George Drafts, the Lexington County Sheriff, and his wife, who were both inside the jailhouse at the time the mob attacked. Here's how Kaufman's arrest came about, according to Michael. How Kaufman is brought to trial is, is, is interesting as well, because in the coroner's inquest, and, and thanks to the, the folks at the uh, Lexington County Courthouse, we were able to find the coroner's inquest that Drafts and his wife are asked, do you recognize any of the mob? Well, no, because they all had masks on uh, in the room when they came in. But both the wife and Sheriff Drafts do say, I recognize the voice of F.C. Coffin, which should not be surprising 
because F.C. Kaufman attends St. Stephen's Lutheran Church, which is the same church George S. Drafts and his wife attend, which is the same church that Manuel Simeon Corley attends. They've all been to church together for years. And you know, if you're in a place around someone, you eventually are going to recognize their voice. And so the combination of the sheriff and his wife pointing the finger at Kaufman, others saying Kaufman is running around the streets of Lexington bragging about it and has blood all over him, will lead to his arrest and indictment. So this is going to be a little crass, uh, and I don't know if you can use it, but man, that sheriff had a pair. To, to not just like stay in the jail, even if he handed over the keys in the face of the mob, to stay in the jail with his people and then to point the finger at the mob leader and say, I know who that was. Given the historical era that we're in, that almost certainly would have resulted in social ostracization, if not actual physical violence, right, against the sheriff or his deputies or his family. So that that's actually remarkable just in and of itself. This is Seth Stoughton a law professor at the University of South Carolina who studies race and the criminal justice system. The fact that the guy is prosecuted, which means you not only have a sheriff, but you have a prosecutor who is also supporting it and a judge who doesn't just throw it out. I think that's one of these, you know, (laughs) we're on the road to a more perfect union, even if we're not there yet, right? Uh, We see, and this is so true of, of many aspects of Reconstruction, we see a hint. We see the promise of what uh, a society governed by rule of law with equity and equality could be, even if we struggle to make the steps to become that society that we would need to. I'm not at all surprised that he was acquitted, that he wasn't convicted. Kaufman didn't try to conceal his part in Willie's lynching. Even news reporters made note of how openly involvement in the lynch mob was discussed on the streets of Lexington in the aftermath, like this account from the Greenville News. Its members make no effort to conceal their identity and openly acknowledge and discuss the matter on the streets. The matter is very coolly discussed here. The situation is marked by a total absence of excitement. The lynchers seem perfectly willing to take the consequences of their act. The evidence was clear enough that Kaufman and another man, Pierce Taylor, who had also talked openly about breaking into the jail, were arrested and charged with murder in Willie's death. It was unusual at this point in South Carolina history for a white man to face criminal charges for killing a black person, but the wantonness of Willie's death carried out inside the county jail where Willie was the state's prisoner by men who had threatened the sheriff and his family in the process was too much for the authorities to let go unanswered. In June, Kaufman and Taylor went on trial in the same courthouse where Willie had been sentenced to death four months earlier. But the trial of the two lynch mob leaders was about as predictable as the earlier one. The trial of F.C. Kaufman is, of course, anticlimactic. Everybody knows the outcome before it happens. What is interesting, though, is that at the first the trial of Willingly part on February 21st, the Cannon family is not there. She's there. She testifies. They are not there, which indicates you know, their lack of belief in her story. Uh, for the June trial, not only is her family there, uh, but the women of Lexington are all dressed in white, either inside or outside the building. 
making it very, very clear that if there was anyone on the jury that had any thoughts about finding this man guilty, that he was standing up for Southern white womanhood. Rosa Cannon was the 18-year-old white woman who accused Willie of attacking her, leading directly to his arrest, conviction, and death. But not only did her family not attend Willie's trial, but letters between Rosa and her mother and brother that later came into the possession of Willie's attorney cast doubt on whether she really thought Willie was the man she said attacked her. Those letters formed the basis for the appeal for clemency that was cut short by Willie's murder. Michael thinks the Cannons might have been pressured to make more of a show of support for F.C. Kaufman when the time came for his trial. But I think it's fascinating in another one of those questions we might never get answered. What compelled the Cannon family, which obviously her brother Charlie provides an affidavit to indicate that, yeah, she was lying, to show up at that trial. And I wonder if it was some, they were mill folk. I mean, they worked in the mill. If it was, well, if y'all don't want to show up to this, you don't have to report to work the next day and you can get out of mill housing. And I wonder if that type of pressure had led them to obviously be there with Rosa Cannon to support F.C. Kaufman when it was clear in, in February they didn't believe her. Kaufman's trial was also attended by another group that sent a message to the judge and jury about the community's feelings about the case. The courtroom was filled throughout the trial with white women dressed identically in white, playing into the idea that far from being seen as violent criminals, Kaufman and Taylor were seen as defenders of white women for participating in the murder of Willie Leapart, the convicted rapist. Not only were Kaufman and Taylor quickly acquitted in their June trial, but they clearly had popular support even while they were sitting in the county jail awaiting their trial date. I think there was some press account that describes them in jail eating ice cream that people are bringing into them. Oh, right. You know, his time in jail uh, was spent um, almost like at a hotel. Uh, he was given extra comforts. He was brought in whatever food he wanted. He could receive visitors, etc. Again, this is a well-thought-of, respectable white man who, in the name of defending white Southern womanhood, had committed murder. And so the majority of the community is not going to treat him poorly as this goes on. Kaufman not only beat the murder charge, but it also didn't hinder his political career. A few months later... Kaufman's political patron, Ben Tillman, was elected governor on a platform that challenged what rights black South Carolinians had won in the years since the end of the Civil War. In that same election, Tillman's allies won control of the legislature, which would help Kaufman find a new line of work. And in fact, Tillman is going to reward him. Tillman will give him uh, a job after the election after the primary and after the the November election where he is going to be named the Senate reading clerk, which is a patronage job. Uh, And it's ironic because I believe it is that the state newspaper who makes the statement and even mentions the fact that this gentleman, speaking of Kaufman, was tried at the last term of court in Lexington for the murder of Willie Lee Part the colored boy who was shot to death while in prison to jail. And although Kaufman exhibited bloodstains on his clothing and boasted of having a hand in the murder, he was acquitted. So 
you know, the, the, the newspaper, the state, your newspaper, was not happy. In fact, in commenting on the overall composition of the legislature, uh, the paper writes, four-fifths of the delegates are new men, and many of them are of the most ignorant kind of backwoods farmers. Which I thought was uh, quite a statement to make in a newspaper article right. as, as a descriptor of the well, state Well, the founder of your newspaper, Gonzalez, uh, obviously is going to meet his death at the hands of not Ben Tillman, but of a relative of Ben Tillman. And when he gets shot on the, you know, the intersection of Maine and Gervais in downtown Columbia, having criticized uh, uh, the, uh, the lieutenant governor at that time. South Carolina is a small place. It is a small place and even smaller in 1890. So here Michael is talking about the state newspaper's first editor, N.G. Gonzalez, who co-founded the Columbia, South Carolina paper with his brother Ambrose one year after Willie's lynching. In its early years, the state would be a thorn in Ben Tillman's side, and in 1903, Gonzalez would be shot to death on Columbia's Main Street by James Tillman, the state's lieutenant governor and Ben Tillman's nephew. The younger Tillman blamed Gonzalez for his failure to be elected governor. The shooting would lead to another controversial South Carolina murder trial, but that's a story for another podcast. But back to F.C. Kaufman. The man who had depended on Tillman's political machine for his own career in state government ultimately begins to clash with the governor over how Kaufman is doing the jobs Tillman gives him. And there's an article in one of the papers at that time where Tillman is, is just criticizing and rebuking Kaufman for not doing his job. Possibly Kaufman was taking bribes. Uh, and, and Tillman did not put up with that from any of his men. Uh, he didn't support that. Tillman runs South Carolina uh, like Huey Long will run Louisiana, but there's a huge difference. Tillman brokers no corruption, where Huey Long is all about corruption in Louisiana. Big difference between the two. Not only would the suspicions around Kaufman disrupt his political career, but a few years after his murder trial, he would find himself in the middle of another murder trial when Kaufman's son was shot and killed in Lexington. It's an ironic epilogue to Kaufman's story, one Michael told while we were touring the St. Stephen's Church Cemetery in Lexington. One would argue karma has a way of evening the score and in June of 1896, F.C. Kaufman Jr. is murdered by A.M. A.M. Harmon, who is buried somewhere in the cemetery. Harmon belongs to one of the leading families of Lexington, but it's a family affiliated with the Tillman Circle. Kaufman, at this point, is on the outs. As the story goes, Franklin Kaufman Jr. was seeing A.M. Harmon's sister. And Harmon believed that Kaufman was take, Jr. was taking some liberties with her and that they would walk over to what is the Palmetto Collegiate Institute, which is down the hill from here, and have, for lack of a better word, relations uh, in, the, in or around the school. And so one day, Kaufman Jr. is walking with the, the Harmon girl, and A.M. Harmon comes up and shoots him in the head, and he dies in the Kaufman home. Uh, later, Harmon is convicted, he is sentenced to prison, but he receives a pardon by the pro-Tillman government at, governor at that time. So I think it's interesting as we look, and I wish our audience could see this, at this tombstone, it reads, Our Boy at Rest, born August 1st, 1876, 
murdered by A.M. Harmon, though they added a D to Harmon, which I don't know if it was intentional or not, June 1896. They put their, their son's murderer's name on his They literally stone. put, and his son's murderer, if we had time, we could probably find him, is buried in this same cemetery. One thing we don't know about the trial of Kaufman Jr.'s killer is whether it involved another minor character in our story, the former sheriff, George Drafts, who was inside the jail the night Willie was killed. This is a good research point, and I haven't found it. It would be interesting to note if George Drafts, as judge, presided over the trial of the Harmon boy that murdered F.C. Kaufman Jr. Again, Lexington is not that big a place at this point in time. Neither is South Carolina, for that matter. And so Kaufman is on the outs. And so even though Tillman is not governor, the governor at that time will pardon the murderer of F.C. Kaufman Jr. Kaufman will later move to Columbia. It appears that even though at his trial you had the women in white, et cetera, et cetera, that his break with Tillman makes him an outcast in Lexington society. And so he will move to what is today Taylor Street in Columbia and, and die in Columbia but be buried at uh, St. Stephen's Lutheran Church. Kaufman was on the opposite side of the Willie Leapart case from George Graham, Willie's court-appointed attorney, who did all he could to save Willie's life and get his client out of jail, even for a while going to jail himself because of the controversy over the letters he and investigator W.J. Miller were able to get from the canons. But while Kaufman's life and career would sink afterward, Graham would go on to be a prominent figure in the community, with one interruption. George Graham will continue as probate judge. His wife, though, is very uncomfortable living in Lexington. And so for a few years after, not immediately after, a few years after the entire Leapart case, uh, the wife has George move to Florida, where he immediately gets elected mayor of that town, they will live there for a period of time, but then he will come back and continue his brilliant legal career. He was mayor in, Le in Florida, and he comes back and is mayor twice elected mayor of Lexington. This, I think, speaks volumes about him and about his character and about who he is, because arguably you would think he would have been ostracized by white society in Lexington, you know, that forced out of town. And when I first heard that story, I figured, well, at some point in 1890, they took off for Florida. It doesn't happen to much later. And he's still taking the train to come back to South Carolina to keep his legal practice. It's his wife that feel, does not like the way uh, the other women in Lexington uh, you know, spoke about her husband during that time period. But they do come back. And he is going to, again, die as one of the leading lawyers in South Carolina. George Graham would pass away in 1934 and be buried in Columbia. I think it simply speaks to the man's character, uh, that he, no one would have faulted him. Nobody would have held it against him. It wouldn't have hurt his reputation as a lawyer if after the 20-minute jury deliberation and guilty verdict, you know, he walked out of the Lexington County Courthouse, which was across the street from the jail at the time, and never did anything with Willie Lee Part again. So, so I certainly think it, it speaks to his high moral character, to his, his belief in, in legal ethics, that he was going to do what he needed to do for his client. And I also think he understood 
that that that, that Willie was innocent, and, and and realized that a grave injustice was going to be done. Graham's appeal got a boost from U.S. Marshal W.J. Miller, who collected the incriminating letters from the cannons. But he had more of a struggle than his colleague because of his role in the case. So W.J. Miller after this is, you know, where Graham is really never threatened or endangered, you know, his wife being offended at, you know, what has taken place. W.J. Miller is a different story. He is essentially run out of Lexington County, and he ends up, as we mentioned, being jailed for the affidavit. And where Graham is released, and he is initially released, Miller's arrested again, and this time jailed in Richland County. And he is going to stay in jail in Richland County for almost a year. But by the spring of 1891, He is dying, really because of the conditions in the Richland County Jail. And on March 28, 1891, as he is close to dying, or after, shortly after he dies, Miller makes what, one of two deathbed confessions. And in both of those, he talks about that, you know, his connection to Patrick Cannon, the father of Rosa, that he heard of and read her letters, that he made the affidavit upon which Judge Wallace acted, and that he did everything. And and it's interesting what's noted in in the article, and this is, again, uh, published uh, by Specialty Augusta Chronicle, I believe the state newspaper actually writes the article, and it says, quote, this confession, if believed, would clear Judge Graham from the charge of forgery and conspiracy to secure Lee Parts reprieve. And then he makes another deathbed confession. It's taking him a long time to die, in which he vouches for that, yes, everything that was in the affidavits, everything that was in those letters was true, and thus pointing to that Rosa Cannon, whether it's from sheer dishonesty or being or being manipulated had said all the things that would indicate that Willie Lee Part was indeed innocent. Simeon Corley, the Civil War veteran and former congressman in whose home the alleged attack happened, would continue being a controversial figure in South Carolina well after the trial. Corley will live in Lexington to the end of his life. Ironically, in November of 1890, his house burns down. And if you read the newspaper accounts, there, there's it, not surprising. There's some mystery as to how that actually happened. We don't know. I mean, again, I don't, I don't want to dive into far out conspiracy theory. If someone burned his house down, but we know his house burned down. By the time you get to, to the last significant mention of Corley as some form of leader, is he is at he signs a petition to be presented by the reverend, the pastor at St. Stephen's Lutheran Church to the 1895 South Carolina Constitutional Convention in which he is supporting uh, the right of women to vote. And as for the woman at the center of the whole case, Rosa Cannon, she mostly vanishes from the historical record after her role in Willie's trial. For all the concern about her condition around the time of the attack, 
We have almost no information about what happened to her after our story, although we do have a record of where she ended up. Rosa Cannon will not exactly disappear. There are two more mentions of her in the media in the 1890s. One has her visiting and staying with the Corleys again. And the the article refers to uh, Miss Corley as being like a second mother to Rosa. And then another one refers to that Rosa, who is living over in Graniteville, has come to Brooklyn, which is which is today Casey, West Columbia. Uh, her father had become a, a one of the mill foremen at the mill that would occupy the or would be in the building that is occupied by the State Museum, and that her brother Owen, the same Owen that was with her on January 26, eighteen ninety, has been severely injured in an accident at the mill and is going to end up dying. Rosa disappears after that until you find a reference to her as Rosalie Thompson, who will die at 58 in Greenwood County and will die, goodness, uh, I'd have to go back and look at the date, but sometime in the 1930s and has children and, and is buried in Greenwood County. And no, even though Rosa's obituary mentions her children, there's no record of whether or not she had a child in 1890. As for Willie Leapart, we only have a vague idea of where his remains ended up. We know he was buried in an unmarked grave in a potter's field, set aside for burying the indigent and executed criminals just north of Lexington. The area has seen a lot of development since then, and it's not clear where Willie's grave is located. The Potter's Field is roughly where the Carol Campbell Alzheimer's Center is today at the intersection of Maxie and Old Cherokee in Lexington. But the location of it has yet to be found. We just have a, a memoir from a lady, Nanny Wingard, whose house was diagonal to where the Potter's Field would be. And she talks about being able to step on her front porch and almost see the Potter's Field, which today is roughly where the Carol Campbell Center is and a water plant is. So this graveyard has been lost to development. But we still know a lot more about Willie Leapart and his story than we do about many of the other people who died in lynchings during this time period. South Carolina was the site of 191 documented lynchings between 1877 and 1950, according to the Equal Justice Initiative. But most of them never got anywhere near as much legal attention and press coverage as Willie's. The last documented lynching in Lexington is 1921, but as we mentioned, the, the nine after Willie Lee part, there's not the same archival anecdotal evidence out there to fully develop the story. The last lynching in South Carolina, of course, occurs in Greenville County, about 10 minutes from my dad's house uh, in 1947 with the lynching of Willie Earl. When Michael first finished his research into Willie's story, he presented his findings to both black and white audiences in Lexington. Initially, he hoped to drum up interest in placing a marker commemorating Willie in the center of town, near the site of the old jail where Willie died. But then he started to think, maybe there was more that could be done to not only remember Willie, but clear his name of the accusation that led to his death. And the more myself and others thought about it, a historical marker pales in comparison to what we really want to happen and what we decided needed to happen. And that is Willie Leapart receive a pardon 
for his conviction for rape, which again, a reprieve is not a pardon. He was not pardoned by Governor Richardson. So when he was murdered, he was murdered as a convicted rapist. And that an effort should be made to pardon him for this crime, which we have overwhelming evidence that he did not commit. But getting Willie's conviction overturned has not been easy. As we talked about before, if you go looking for the official records of Willie's trial in the basement of the Lexington County Courthouse, you'll discover that all of the county trial records from 1890 have gone missing. That includes the record of F.C. Kaufman's lynching trial, by the way. The coincidence has left Michael a little suspicious. And so we went down there and started pulling out books. And, and in some of the books, it had basically the trial transcripts, and it was divided by year. So we found 1887, 1888, 1889, 1892. You know, we somewhere at some time there was a trial transcript of what actually went on in the trial of both Willie Lee Park and the trial of F.C. Kaufman. And just magically that book has disappeared. And we searched everywhere. And it's a pretty dingy and dirty place to search. And we walked out of there covered head to toe dust and never found the book uh, of that. Uh, flash forward a few months later, I was given a talk at the Lexington County Library and this senior citizen lady comes up and she says, I just want to tell you that my husband used to work at the courthouse and that when, you know, it, it, when they began to move things from the courthouse that had been across the street in, 19, in 1890 to the 1940 courthouse, there were a number of things that were thrown out as, as being seen as embarrassing to the citizens of Lexington. And so that's where I, what I think happened to the 1890 trial transcripts, because they are nowhere else, but we can find everything but that year. It's, it's just more fuel for conspiracy theories. It is. It is. And, and, and it's, it's not just unfounded conspiracy theories that you, if you understand the social and cultural norms of the day that where honor and reputation mean everything and your fan, and even into the 20th century, uh, certainly the Kaufman family, which still lives in Lexington and Columbia area, uh, it would be embarrassing to them to have that out there. And certainly to others in Lexington. I mean, it's many of these family names, you know, the, the families are still here. And, you know, it would not have surprised me that that book wasn't dispensed of because of what it contained inside. Also missing are the affidavits from George Graham's appeal, the ones from Rosa's own family that undercut her rape accusation against Willie? Even though we know from press accounts that they were delivered to Governor Richardson and may have even been seen by the journalist writing about the case, they also have gone missing. But somewhere in somebody's file, there has to be the, the actual affidavits in the letters. Now, that, yeah. there's no question in my mind. I mean, the press copied them directly, but, you know, they're not in Richardson stuff. I sat out there in an afternoon at the archives for four or five hours. And I kept, God bless the guy that was working the desk, he kept bringing me box of Richardson papers. I learned more about Richardson than I ever wanted to know. And it just never popped up. 
So instead of trying to build a legal case based on documents no one seems to have, Michael decided to appeal for a pardon and ask South Carolina's governor to formally wipe Willie's record clean. And rather than try to figure out if we could get a second trial, etc., going to the pardon and parole board made the most sense. But how do you get there? In February of 2022, I was invited by the South Carolina House Democratic Caucus to present this story with the idea being, and, and, and my friend uh, Representative Russell Ott brought me in, that if we could get the support of House Democratic Caucus, we could have some standing with the governor. And it worked out just like that. Within 48 hours, I'm talking to staff of the governor, and they were receptive to looking at a pardon. At that point, it, we were on the one-yard line. I mean, we were at the doorstep. And then the pardon parole board let all of us know that we have to have a living descendant of Willie Lee Part in order to legally file uh, a request for a pardon. And at that point, it's over a year now, we have absolutely stalled because we cannot seem to locate a family member, a living descendant of Willie Leapart. Now, there are plenty of, of Leaparts, African-American and white in Lexington. There are a number of Willie Leaparts in Lexington, but none of them are our Willie Leapart. Meeting that standard would be difficult because Michael has been able to find very little evidence of where Willie's surviving relatives ended up after the lynching. Most of them seem to have left the area after Willie died, and the official records quickly run cold if you try to track them very far after that. As best we can tell, his father will stay in Lexington, Dahl Leapart, and his father will actually be in 1910 in what is at that time called the Lexington County Poorhouse. Ironically, the African-American poorhouse was located on the same property of the Carroll Campbell Alzheimer's Center, and that most likely Dahl Leapart died there and is, is buried in the same potter's field that is on either that property or the water plant property that his young son Willie was buried at. And that's frustrating because we know Willie had at least one brother who may have carried on the family name. His brother Edward was arrested with Willie and booked into the county jail the same night Willie was arrested, only to be released and vanished from history the day before Willie's trial. We do believe a couple of his brothers went to Florida, but you know, again, efforts being made, and, and, and again, I've recently recruited a genealogist to try to make some effort in tracking a living descendant down. We have come up empty. And so we literally are sitting on this great opportunity to make right by this young man who was done wrong in 1890 uh, and are simply looking for, for some luck here. And that's where we started this podcast series, looking to find someone who could move the ball forward on Willie's pardon. At this point, there is little more Michael and other supporters of Willie Leapart can do. For a while, it looked as if the genealogist Michael hired had a few leads in Florida, but unfortunately, he has yet to find anyone who would have the legal standing to get Willie's rape conviction overturned. But right now, we just need just some luck, just a break, because I, I feel like that maybe the easiest part of this is once we're able to request a pardon, 
and attract the needed media attention and inform the public of why we want to do this, that it would be extraordinarily hard, A, to say no, and B, for the governor to say no. I believe the pardon board will want to do the right thing and, the, and Governor McMaster will want to do the right thing. And, and it's my understanding it can be a grandniece or a grandnephew, however many greats you want to put on there, but it's got to be someone they can directly prove is a living descendant of Willie Lee Park. The challenge of that is that the family, you know, Willie Lee Park, when he is on the, I think it's the 1880 census, his mother has already been deceased. So there is the father, and then there are his brothers. I can't remember if there's a sister or not, but between this and the next mention of Dahl Lee Park in the 1910 census, the children scatter. It's believed by J.R. Fennell at the Lexington County Museum that one or more of the brothers ended up in Florida but again, the challenge is, how, how do you find uh, the living descendants today, which is the hope of this podcast, of course, that someone will listen to it and say, you know, I heard this story in my family. Let me, let me ask, and, and, and maybe that's the connection, and that's where we're able to finally bring some justice for Willie all these years later. Getting Willie a pardon, even after more than 130 years, would go some way to erasing a stain from South Carolina's past. But the University of South Carolina's Stoughton says there's also a, a risk to thinking about historical cases like Willie's that way. I think sometimes there's a real risk when we're looking at these historical cases and when we're clearing people's names, victims of horrific crimes, there's sometimes a, a real risk that we're going to look at that as independent evidence of meaningful social progress. Look how far we've come. We cleared Willie's name, right? The problem with that is it's easy to do. In today's world, looking at the victim of a lynching who was pulled out of a jail cell and hung, as happened on a number of occasions, or was shot to death in a jail cell, they look like a victim. And it's easy to sympathize with victims. The risk, I think, is that we limit our compassion to the historical figures who now look like victims, and we're willing to overlook a number of the contemporary problems where maybe if we fast forwarded a hundred years, some of those folks are going to look like victims too. So I think, you know, as we, not that it's not worth it to try and clear someone's name, right? But, you know, to be entirely blunt, it doesn't matter to Willie at this point. Maybe it matters to his relatives if they're even aware of it in the first place. What practical significance of it is it? Maybe none. We don't need to have practical significance for something to be valuable, right? There are other reasons to do things beyond practical significance. But I do want to make sure that those other values don't lead us into a trap of patting ourselves on the back about how great we are remedying the injustices of the past without also recognizing the injustices of the present. 
But that doesn't mean Stoughton thinks trying to get justice for Willie is pointless. If anything, he thinks we have something to learn from Willie's case. In some sense, requiring a living successor to be the one who files the claim or who puts forward the request makes sense from a purely administrative perspective, right? We're just going to narrow the cases by requiring it to be a, a next of kin, in essence. It's not particularly satisfying, though, right? Because whenever we're talking about administrability, we're really talking about drawing arbitrary lines. Well, why why a next of kin? Why not just someone in the community who says, hey, there was a historical wrongdoing here. Shouldn't we care about that? Well, we should, but the things that we should care about kind of run into the reality of limited government resources and, frankly, bureaucracy. None of which has to do with the actual incident, which I'm also very excited to talk about. Excited is a weird word here because it's it's horrendous, but it also gets at this really important, dense, rich history of the backlash to Reconstruction that I think a lot of people miss as they think about the popular history of the United States, right? The popular history is the South had slaves, we had the Civil War, we had Reconstruction, and then at some point after Reconstruction, like things didn't go so well and we ended up in Jim Crow. The problem with that is like, it's almost a hundred years, right? Like uh, that, that whole, and we ended up in Jim Crow from the end of Reconstruction till the Civil Rights Era is almost a hundred years. There's a lot that happened in there, some good, a lot bad, that cases like this really help illustrate and, and illuminate not just what went wrong, but also, frankly, the promise that we failed to live up to as a country. Trying to correct the historic wrongs of the Jim Crow South can feel like a monumental task, but Michael has been encouraged by the reaction to Willie's story when he shared it in presentations not only in his class at River Bluff High School, but across the community. Even if Willie's story at one point was swept under the rug, most people today seem open to hearing the story and honestly grappling with the implications for the community's history. The biggest test of this was here at this church when I delivered my talk on the lynching of Willie Leapart to our Lutheran men's group who had among them descendants of all these families. Uh, in there. And so that was sort of the test. I wanted to see, you know, have we come far enough in Lexington, South Carolina, the South, in race relations to where I can talk about this and not receive, you know, some hostile backlash. And it didn't happen. It was understanding. It was shock. It was support for what we're trying to do. Uh, it was everything that I would argue 40 years ago, you would have not gotten here uh, with that. And I think that shows progress. Obviously, you know, America is just the story of a journey to live up to the, the ideals of the Declaration of Independence. And we're certainly not there yet, but we're making progress. Willie's story had been so thoroughly forgotten that even when Michael presented his findings to Lexington's African-American community, it was hard to find anyone who could remember hearing about it before. The reaction was somewhat surprising in that nobody had heard this story. And I'm talking about longtime people who have lived in this community, even people who grew up on Maiden Lane had not heard this story. Even members of, of New Bethel AME had not heard this story. 
that they knew of these things that lynchings took place and they had encountered racism in their lives. Some of them had actually been in the first graduate, the first class at Lexington High School to be integrated uh, and had encountered you know, racial hostility and, and things of that nature. But this particular story what was completely unknown and certainly in the, in the depth that it was discussed. Constance Fleming and her daughter Ebony Bowers are lifelong residents of the Hill neighborhood in Lexington. Believe the more people who know about Willie Leapart's story, the better. For me, I'm a proponent of you have to know your history, mm-hmm. and I do mean full history, so you won't repeat it. So I, I really strongly believe in that. So yes, I, I think it's a good thing for us to know because honestly, I could probably ask my daughters about it. I'm not even sure if they know about it. Yeah. Do you think that's it, kind of been, uh, you know, rescued from being something that's just forgotten and swept under the rug then? Oh, most definitely. Mm-hmm. Because we know it was swept under, under the rug, rug. Yes. and it's not under there by itself, mm-hmm. but it's just, we got to pull it out in order to talk about it. Right. Constance grew up attending the all-black Rosenwald School in Lexington's Hill neighborhood. She completed every grade at the community school until her second year of high school, when she was moved to the newly integrated Lexington High School. She remembers how difficult those years were to be black in Lexington. There were certain things I couldn't do. Um, For example, I could not be, I had been on the honor society since ninth grade. Uh, well, really since eighth grade. But anyway, I was told I could not be on the Honor Society there because they didn't rate what happened at at Lexington Rosenwald the same way what happened at Lexington High School. So I had to give that up. I couldn't be a cheerleader because I couldn't cheer well enough. I didn't cheer the way they wanted me to cheer. Um, I was a singer and the choral director was not from around here. In fact, she was a part of, her husband traveled. They were in the military. He was in the military. And that type of thing, color or whatever, it didn't matter to her. So she said she heard a good singer and she wanted me to sing. Well, the first time I did a solo and I did the um, national anthem and I had some of the teachers and some of the students to get up and walk out on me. Mm. And they were led by the teachers. Constance later became a teacher and came back to work in her old segregated school, which had then become Lexington Intermediate School. Some years later, uh, at least two of those teachers that got up and walked out ended up, I came back as a teacher in the district in one of our teachers' meetings. I was no longer that student anymore. I was their co-worker. So... It's been a lot of changes, yes, but we know, hey, don't get excited because that'll rear its ugly head at any time. And when it does, we just smile and and keep it moving. Did they remember you from oh, looking yeah. back then? or? Oh, yes, they did. Oh, yes. And, and in fact, one of them, bless her heart, she passed away not too long ago. Um, her thing was she would always ask for me and send for me to come and see her. It was as if, oh, yeah, they knew. They recognized me. They knew exactly what the situation was. And um, it was not an issue for me. In fact, my father, Mr. Willoughby character, raised us. He was in the military. 
and he went through a lot in the military because he went in as um, he went in after he graduated, he and his brother went in after they graduated from college and they were, they would not let them be officers, but then they wouldn't, they could let them be foot soldiers either because they had their college degrees. So a lot of the experiences that he shared with us, but he also raised us to know that people are people and you just treat them that way. And if they want to treat you differently, that's their problem. Let them handle that. You you don't ever take that on for yourself. Today, local students are working to preserve the memory of the old Rosenwald School, now finding another life as a community learning center. Students at Gilbert High School are interviewing graduates of the Rosenwald School to preserve its history, and Constance hopes their work will convince the school district to preserve the physical school building itself as well. It's gone through a number of phases, but it doesn't look like they're going to tear it down. So that's a good thing. And I know they won't now that another school has become involved in it. And Mike has mentioned some things about it, but I was just very surprised when Gilbert High School uh, just stepped up to the plate and started doing interviews and all and invited us to come back down there and see it. And they are going to continue to do this. And this is really good because, of course, a lot of our graduates are, are dying. I am certainly not trying to be the Lexington Chamber of Commerce and saying things are perfect here, because even when I was in college, one of the things I was told early on, because being of Lebanese descent, I get fairly dark in the summer, is be careful when you cross the river. And I'm like, what are y'all talking about? And they were talking about crossing the Congaree River and going into Lexington County, as at that time, certainly not hospitable to, to to, to people of dark complexions, whether it's African-American or a boy from Greenville who, who had Arab grandparents. But I think that it just continued the progress. You know, one of the things I notice at River Bluff High School, and I guess it's, it's bad that I noticed this, is that there's no, not a real racial divide in terms of who's hanging out with who. It's those students who Michael thinks about when he thinks about what happened to Willie. Not only because a high schooler's question led him to start investigating lynchings in his own backyard and discover Willie's story, but also because of the similarities between Willie and the students Michael teaches every day. And there have been people who say, well, why does this matter? I mean, this is 1890, that's a long time ago. Well, again, this young 16-year-old could have been like any of my students I taught, could have been like either of my sons that, that have both passed 16 at this point, could be any young person who was born in that time. And how can you just say, oh, well, it just happened then. It's okay, he goes to his death in an unmarked grave, and that's gonna be okay in a country where we value things, the dignity of the individual and, and justice for all. Thank you for listening to this podcast series. I'm Bristow Marchant. The Wrong Walk Home is a product the state newspaper. It's produced by Lume Alasali, Jennifer Molina, Chrysanthi Pickett, Kata Stevens, and Joshua Boucher. Special thanks to Don Blunt. For lots more on this story, visit thestate.com slash Leapart. If you have more details on Willie Leapart's life, death, or descendants, email me at bmarchant at thestate.com.